Well, good morning, and it's good to see you, as always. My name is Nathan, and I am here to uh, just to preach God's word to us this morning, to let it work on our hearts, I pray. And, and so we pray, if it's your first time here, we pray that this service is a blessing to you. Uh, if it's not your first time, guess what? We pray this service is a blessing to you. Um, we're here just to make much of Jesus uh, together as his people. And so if you have a Bible, we're going to be kind of a lot of different places today, but we're really going to kind of launch out from Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we started a series last week that we're calling Counter Kingdom. And uh, as I said last week, this is not counter kingdom like this is a chess match between God and the enemy, and this is his counter move, but rather this is his counter kingdom in the sense that it's counter to the way in which we often think about things in life. It's a kingdom that he began when he came to earth. Uh, he said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He said that multiple times, and then he basically brings us the kingdom of heaven in himself, and he shows us what it's like in his kingdom. And so what we've, we're doing through this next uh, seven weeks, it's an eight-week series in total, is we're walking through the Beatitudes, which are the, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, the one that a lot of us know, the Sermon on the Mount that says things like, um, you know, you shall not, you've heard it said, you shall not commit murder, but I say if you hate someone in your heart, that Sermon on the Mount is what we're talking about. And at the beginning, before all of the, the the way that the kingdom of God looks from a holiness standpoint that Jesus gets into, he begins with blessing. He begins with blessing. And we call these the Beatitudes because the, the word that the Beatitudes come from, the Latin word means blessing. And so last week we talked about the fact that before he gives us law, he gives us blessing. Before he asks for obedience, he gives us grace. Before he expects transformation, he gives us love. The blessings in Jesus' counter kingdom, they're counterintuitive to our expectations. They're blessings in scenarios in which we don't really expect them because the kingdom of this world has conditioned us to think a certain way. There's happiness and joy in situations that ordinarily don't really seem very happy or joyful, to be honest, because the kingdom is contrary in many ways to the kingdom of this world. And so last week we addressed the first beatitude, blessed are the poor, in spirit. And we said that being poor in spirit just basically means like spiritual bankruptcy. Like you realize you have no resources to offer God. There's, there's nothing that you could offer him that he would say like, well, that'll do. That, I can work with that. Other than just your heart, your life. He just wants you and he transforms you. And so we said that being poor in spirit means we're spiritually bankrupt before Jesus. And that we also said that the reality is like we're all poor in spirit. It's not like some of you in here are pretty awesome in spirit and then some of us are pretty poor. We're all poor in spirit. But what makes the poor in spirit blessed are the ones that acknowledge it. They realize that they're poor in spirit and they acknowledge it and they come to Jesus. And when they do, he says, the kingdom of heaven is yours and I will never cast you out. So we talked about last week, the Beatitudes are tempting for us to turn into do attitudes. We look at them a lot of times kind of as just simply character traits that we should pursue. And in one way, that's true because they are lining out, this is what the kingdom of heaven looks like, and we should be being transformed into the image of Jesus. Yet, in reality, a lot of, and they're not really do attitudes, it's more of a state of being that they are. They're not these like one-off traits that we should resemble, but more kind of ways of living for us meaning that these are aspects of the life of a Christian that Jesus himself is forming us into. 
And so today's beatitude is a way of life that we naturally push back against. It's a bit uncomfortable. We're talking about mourning, mourning with a U, not good morning, but mourning. We live in a society that isn't really sure how to engage with mourning. Because on the one hand, when we see tragedy strike, like we engage in that way, we engage those that are mourning from a humanitarian perspective, especially on a large scale. We give to relief efforts. Maybe you text the Red Cross and give you give $10 or whatever. You might lend a hand to a neighbor if there's tragedy that has struck there. Maybe you welcome in a stranger. Maybe you give money for clean water or non-perishable foods when tornadoes or hurricanes come through. And if it's loss of life, you know, we often bring food to someone that we know that's had a death in the family to encourage them. We, we get all of that. But mourning is also, it's just deep and it's just awkward. And it usually brings discomfort. And the reality is because it brings discomfort, we naturally, we just wanna fix it for people. We wanna fix it for other people. And it's uncomfortable to mourn and it's uncomfortable sometimes to be around people who are mourning. I can remember my wife and I being in mourning over two miscarriages several years ago. And we had family and friends who meant well, but would say some things that just aren't helpful. And I've actually heard from other people that have been through miscarriages that they hear similar things. Things like, you know, I, I get why you're sad, but hey, you got pregnant, just try again right? As though I just received some online purchase in the wrong size that I can just send back. It's all good. I mean, it kind of stinks to wait that much longer, but you know, it's fine. I mean, they, people mean well. In fact, I know I've probably said some really, really intentional or unintentionally harmful things to people trying to be helpful in the past when people are hurting. Why is that? Because we just don't really know what to do. When people are mourning, we don't sit in it with them. We don't like to sit in it ourselves. We don't like mourning in us. We don't like mourning in others. So we look for the bright side. We look for the quickest escape. We look for the magic words to fix it. But usually there isn't a quick fix. So we result to try, hello, I'll lose it. We result to try to, we good? Oh, everything shut off. All right. Well, I was at the Chiefs game this week and I yelled really loud. So uh, on the one hand, my voice is not as strong, but on the other hand, I can't yell louder for them than Jesus. So here we go.
and loathing. We don't like being mournful, but Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. But we need to be careful to understand what Jesus actually means by the word mourn. You see, most scholars and I, that I read, and I would tend to agree, it's good, by the way, to agree with most people that say the same thing, uh, by the way, but they, they don't see this accounting for mourning in general. This isn't necessarily saying like, happy are those who aren't happy. Joyful are those who are sad, generically. You see, there's a specific source to our mourning in view here for Jesus. So what's the difference between mourning in general and blessed mourning? What is the nuance between mourning that is bookended by sadness on both ends and the mourning that begins with sadness but ends in joy? To understand this, I believe you need to look at last week. Like we need to understand the context of what Jesus is saying, blessed are those who mourn. You see, the reason the poor in spirit from last week are blessed is because the poor in spirit realize their spiritual poverty, their bankruptcy and their need for grace, their need for God to intervene, to wash us clean, as we just sang, by his blood, to give us the richness of his spiritual righteousness. You see, those who are poor in spirit are blessed because they realize their need and their lack. But the question is, what does this realization actually lead to in us? Does it lead you to just indifference or apathy? Yeah, I know I'm poor in spirit, but it's all right. Or does the realization of your spiritual poverty lead you to mourning? It should, and it will. You see, blessed are the poor in spirit because they mourn. And this type of mourning is blessed. So let's clarify what is mourning in this sense. Well, the Greek word used here for mourning is pentheo, and this word means to mourn or lament. The range of this word, though, within the Hebrew context, this idea carries more of mourning carries grief, lament, sorrow, and even guilt. In fact, like last week, last week we said Matthew uses the strongest word for poor that he could in that scenario, and this week he uses the strongest Greek word for mourning. It is a deep mourning. It's not the mourning that you felt at the beginning of the fourth quarter last night. This is deep mourning. And scripture speaks to the fact that people that feel this type of feeling, this lament, this sorrow, this grief, they do find comfort. Generally, they do. Look at Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is close to who? The brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. I've clung to that verse in my life. How about 2 Corinthians 1, 3? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. We see blessing in our affliction and our troubles, blessing in having a broken heart. But Jesus is speaking more specifically here in Matthew 5, 4, because this is, this is directed at people inside his kingdom. This is grace for those in the kingdom of heaven. And God may and does comfort people outside his kingdom in their broken hearts and their affliction. But what does this beatitude mean specifically as you consider his counter kingdom, people inside the kingdom of heaven? Well, Jesus is most likely speaking about mourning and lament of the brokenness 
caused by our sin in the world and the sin in us. And this should stir deep mourning in us. Think about situations in our world that cause you grief and mourning now. You've got the war in Ukraine. It's been almost seven months now, I think, since that started. Still going, death, destruction, people's lives upended, people leaving the country, refugees. COVID-19, I know, gosh, it's hard to believe it's been almost three years since that started. And so there's a little bit of us, like we feel like we've kind of come out of that, but reality is like there's a lot of lament and depression and mourning that we still probably haven't even faced yet. People that we knew that we lost to it, people who lost jobs, people who were in isolation for so long, people who have long COVID. COVID-19 still causes mourning. The death of a loved one, maybe you look at our country and just how divided we are and that causes you to just mourn that. You got terrorism wreaking havoc in other parts of the world. We have brothers and sisters who are being persecuted on the other side of the world for their faith that are in jail as we speak for what they believe about Jesus. Maybe you have a wayward child who just, man, he's just running from the Lord. Maybe you have a wayward parent who you've been praying for is just not following Jesus. Maybe you have a wayward spouse. Maybe you're here alone or you're watching online alone because they won't come with you. And then you add on top of all that, the natural disasters that seem to be increasing, tornadoes going through places you don't typically see tornadoes go through. And the feeling in your gut when you see these things take place, that feeling is mourning. It's a sense that this just shouldn't be happening, that this just ought not to be the way it is. And when we, when we lament and we mourn in this way, we're actually tapping into a reality that is deeper than the actual situation you're mourning itself. You're actually mourning something that has come all the way back from Genesis 3, the fall of humanity. That's really what we're mourning in the deepest, truest sense. We're mourning the state of our world and all its brokenness. And Genesis 3 and Romans 8 and other places let us know that the reason the world is broken the way it is is because of our sin. We mourn that. We see brokenness all over the world and we see it too in the church. Many churches have so desired power and influence and they're fearful of the culture that they've denied the power of God to take the power of politics. And we should mourn when we see the church make that kind of a trade. And we should mourn abuse in the church. We see it. It's becoming more and more obvious where it's happening, both abuse of power and sexual in nature. You got Christians talking hatefully about other people. Maybe they're Christians, maybe they're not that they're talking about. Either way, it's not good. We see brokenness in the church. We see unrepentant sin and we see church division. What many of us felt back in the spring and some still feel now. And there are other churches in our town. There are whole denominations right now because of theological stances that are going through division. What we felt then and what some of you may even still feel That's mourning, that's what that is. It's lament of what ought not to be. And it's a right feeling. The church in Corinth had a major issue within their church and listen to what Paul says to them in 1 Corinthians 5, one and two. He says, it is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans don't tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife and you're proud. 
shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning? Instead of rejoicing at the grace of God here, Paul says you should be mourning the depth of the perverseness of this type of brokenness. And if you do, he says, blessed are you. Blessed are those who mourn. But before you think we're only gonna look at like the brokenness of the world and the world at large, listen to the way Paul talks about the sinful desires he wrestles with in himself. In Romans chapter seven, see if this sounds familiar to you. So I find this law at work. Although I wanna do good, evil's right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Anybody, does that sound familiar? Ever felt like you should do something that you know is right? But for some reason, like there's this massive tug in your heart that's like, oh, I wanna do something that I know isn't right. Anybody? Just me, okay, all right, there's an amen. Gosh, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm, this is my last sermon. Um, this should be very familiar to us. I wanna do this, but I feel like evil is right there. And this is Paul, this isn't like, you know, Thomas, doubting Thomas, who actually was a great leader, by the way, but this isn't Thomas, this isn't Judas, this is Paul. He feels this right there. I wanna do good, but evil's right there with me. And notice the use of Paul's language here. Does he say that sin is kind of like slightly enticing to him? No, he says it's waging war. Like internally, he feels a war. And it's this constant struggle within himself that causes the cry of 724, what a wretched man I am. But the reality is like, that's everybody's experience that's in Jesus, that we have a new spirit. The scriptures say we get a new heart and yet there's our flesh and there's this tug of war within us. Do you ever get to that point? Do you ever just feel like you're so frustrated, things are still enticing to you that, didn't, that you don't want to be anymore. You see, I think most of us feel this a lot. And I wanna dig a little deeper to what you do when you feel that. Because I think for some reason, a lot of us, we wanna avoid it. We feel the mourning inside and we wanna avoid it. Why? Because we run from discomfort. We're trained in that, especially in America. We go to great lengths to avoid discomfort. And as I said last week, we live in a culture that elevates self-esteem, that what's most important is that everyone has a high self-esteem and believes in themselves and their truth, so to speak. And so to, to, to just kind of grapple with the fact that there's parts of us that are, that are not good, there's parts of us that, man, that just feels like they're evil even in, in our hearts and, and we know they are and we don't really know why it's there and we wrestle with it. Like, it's just easier just to kind of avoid it. Just don't even think about it. And really what it does is it a lot of times shows that we're not really believing the gospel if you're a Christian in the room. Because what happens is part of the reason we wanna avoid it is because then if we, if we just look at the reality of some of the brokenness in our hearts, well, we feel condemned. Like how, how can I really be a Christian and still feel that? Ever felt that? Ever thought that about yourself? How, how, can, how can I really be a disciple of Jesus and that thought just came to my mind. So we feel condemnation. We, 
we feel like, okay, I just want to avoid the morning altogether because if, if I engage with that, it's going to lead me down this path. So how do we avoid it? Well, one way we do, we justify it. We either ignore it or we justify it. We're like, well, it's, I mean, yeah, it's, I guess you could call it evil, but it's really not that bad. I mean, think of all the things I didn't do, Lord. We justify it. Or what we do, one way we justify it is we justify it by comparison. Yeah, it's, it's pretty rough, but I mean, you really should be having your attention over here. You should be looking at them. You should look at all the stuff they do. You realize that like I probably was tempted to do that, but I didn't do that. We justify ourselves through comparison. We avoid it. The other thing we can do though is we may just wallow in it. Instead of avoiding it, what we might do is we might actually just wallow. Woe is me and we feel hopeless. I'm never gonna get there. I'm never gonna see growth. How am I ever gonna get better at this? And so we, sometimes we avoid mourning, sometimes we despair in our brokenness, but there is a blessed option and that blessed option is mourning. It's a third option and it's a blessed option. It's to lament the state of our world, not to turn a blind eye to it. And it's to mourn the brokenness in our hearts that we still see and actually allow ourselves to step into the brokenness of our world and our own existence. But how does stepping into it lead to blessing? Well, one way you see it as a blessing is that Jesus himself engaged in this type of mourning. We see Jesus enter the brokenness. He steps into the brokenness of our world in all kinds of ways. We see basically what he's calling us to do is to echo the way that he steps into the brokenness. Listen to how Isaiah prophesies about Jesus in Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. This is a prophecy about the coming Messiah. And this is Jesus, a man of sorrows. Some of your translation may say a man of suffering. Jesus acquainted with grief or yours might say he knew what sickness was or he knew pain. Jesus despised and rejected by humanity. Here comes Jesus and he's held in low esteem by the very people he created. Jesus leaves heaven and comes to earth and he doesn't speak into our brokenness like some detached God from on high. No, he enters into the brokenness. He takes on flesh, flesh that's susceptible to pain and to hunger and to death. Jesus enters the brokenness. And not only does he take on flesh in the brokenness, he lives within it. Like he doesn't just show up and the next day he's on the cross. He lives 33 years. He creates, he has a life within it. He has a family. He's betrayed. He has brothers and sisters. He sees the results everywhere he goes of our sinful rebellion in every way. And he's the creator. So he knows what he created the world to be like. And he sees what it actually is because of our sin. He sees lives wasted. He sees lives corrupted 
by selfishness, people who are refusing to help the poor. He sees spiritually corrupted, spirituality corrupted by pride and condemnation. He makes friends and he sees friends die. When Jesus comes to see Mary and Martha in John chapter 11, after their brother Lazarus has died, they're upset with him because they sent word to him before Lazarus died by quite a while that he was sick and Jesus did not come. And the scriptures tell us on purpose so that he could glorify his name on earth. But he shows up, Martha's mad. She greets him, if you could call it that, a greeting. Where have you been? Mary's just weeping. And Jesus knows like he comes to raise Lazarus from the dead. That's why he's coming. He knows that this is gonna end in joy, yet even though he's coming to perform a miracle, as he approaches the tomb of Lazarus, you see just the weight of the brokenness of the situation and the world weighing down on Jesus. And here we have one of the most profound two words in scripture, John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. Think about that. Jesus wept. The shortest verse in scripture with some of the deepest implications. The sovereign God of the universe in human flesh experiences human brokenness. He enters in and he weeps. Even though he will hug Lazarus again in just a few minutes, even though he's going to deliver Mary and Martha, their brother, back to them, he weeps. He is overcome with emotion at the depth of sin and the havoc that it's wreaked on his good creation. And he was the perfect human. And he weeps. And he's saddened at the loss of a loved one. Do you see Jesus' humanity here? Don't miss that. Do you see him enter in? And it's not just here. If you look at Luke in his gospel account, he describes Jesus coming to Jerusalem the week that he's gonna be crucified. And he says this, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, this is Jesus, he wept over it and said, if you, even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. A lot of times my application point for each of these points is a question for you, but today and this one, it is not. I want you to look at me and hear me. Don't ever feel guilty for weeping or mourning the brokenness in our world. Don't ever feel guilty for that. It is not super Christian to be stoic in pain. It is not super Christian to be detached from our world. It's not super Christian to be indifferent to suffering. To be a Christian is to follow in the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus is to mourn the brokenness that we see. This is the echo of blessed mourning. As we mourn the brokenness in the world, we are echoing the blessed mourning that we see in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Yet, while Jesus mourns the brokenness, he doesn't mourn his own brokenness because he's the perfect son of God. 
He isn't broken within from sin. And we cannot say the same. At best, our mourning is an echo of his mourning. And therefore, we as Christians must ask, what is it about our mourning? The mourning of our own poor spirit, the mourning of our predicament as his people, as we desire to follow him on the one hand, but have a war waging against us in our flesh on the other to do the things we ought not to do. What is it about this mourning that can make us blessed? Well, it's a great question. This morning is blessed because this type of morning ends with comfort. Go back to the beatitude. What does he say in Matthew 5, 4? Blessed are those who mourn. Why? For they will be comforted. Like being poor in spirit ends with an inheritance of the kingdom of heaven, so mourning that poor spirit ends with comfort because that comfort comes from placing yourself under the Lord in his waterfall of grace. The essence of blessed mourning is mourning the brokenness that our sin has created in the world and has created in us. And the comfort of that mourning is that, Jesus, is that we come to Jesus with, the, with, it, with us in that type of mourning and he alone, as we come to him, he alone can actually bring the comfort that our soul needs in that moment of mourning. Why? Why is Jesus alone the only one that can actually comfort us in our mourning? Well, because he alone is the one that can solve the problem that provokes the mourning within. Jesus, the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, saves the mourning. Poor spirit by grace offered through his substitutionary death on the cross and resurrection. If you look back at Isaiah 53, we were at Isaiah 53.3 earlier. Look at Isaiah 53.5. This is probably familiar to a lot of you. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, us comfort, was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus, the man of suffering, took our ultimate suffering, our separation from God due to our willful brokenness and transgressions, and he took that suffering on himself. And by his wounds, our mourning, our sadness, our grief, our sorrows, our transgressions, our brokenness can be healed. This is how Paul finishes with this wretched man I am statement. What a wretched man I am? Well, this is how he concludes. He says, but thanks be to God. This is Romans 7. Thanks be to God who delivers me. How? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. We are delivered from this bondage that we mourn and there's no condemnation for us in Jesus. Hear that church, there is no condemnation, not a little condemnation, not depends on your day, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. By his wounds we are healed and by this truth we are comforted. But the only way we find comfort in this good news of Jesus is to first mourn the poverty of our own spirit to acknowledge our brokenness and to mourn its reality. But when we are people who mourn in this way, 
We are people who will be comforted. Do you, mo- do you mourn the brokenness in you? Do you mourn it? It's so easy to look over it, to excuse it, to justify it, to ignore it. Do you mourn it? What I find is that the longer I follow Jesus, the more I see in my heart that makes me mourn. You know, it's not simply like, oh, Jesus paid for my sin in the past. I never think about it. Reality is like the more I follow him, the more I'm like, oh my gosh. The more I'm transformed into his image, the closer I get to him, the more the dark places in my heart are made very obvious. And one of those that I see a lot is my pride. And now I know like some of you, just because culturally Christianity, the way we are, we're like, oh wow, pride, that's, a, that's not a bad thing to have to have. You know that the Bible says God opposes the proud? He doesn't say that about every sin that you think is really bad. He says he opposes the proud. And I see pride in my heart a lot and it's ugly. I see sometimes I have a desire for influence, which can be good. We wanna leverage our lives for the glory of God, but can also be corrupting. I see sometimes like my anger towards people who are just so slow to get it. Like really, still? What is wrong with you? Open your eyes. I just, I see the slowness of my sanctification, the slowness of my becoming like Jesus. I'm like, gosh, this is taking forever. And Jesus says, yeah, it's gonna take your whole life. In fact, it's gonna take me coming all the way back to fully restore. So press in where you are now. Mourn what you see now but come to me for comfort. You see, we should mourn the sin we see in our life, but it would be a self-righteous and self-pitying mistake if we only mourn these because it might impact our reputation. That's 2 Corinthians 7. That's the type of worldly sorrow that just leads to death. Oh, what will people think about me if they knew this? Oh, I'm mourning the fact that I got busted. That's not godly sorrow. That's worldly sorrow. Sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7 says, godly sorrow leads to what? Repentance, a changing of our mind. I, I don't wanna be like that, Lord. Please change me. And that ultimately leads to salvation. See, the type of mourning that is just self-pity is just regret for your life. But the type of mourning that this is, mourning my contribution to the brokenness of our world, well, this is the mourning that's blessed. And so as we close, I, I wanna show you something. Uh, I think this type of blessed mourning is, is not bookended by sadness on both sides. This type of blessed mourning ends in comfort and it ends in blessing and it ends in joy. And I think when, there's a beautiful Psalm in Psalm 20, 126 that really helps crystallize what it looks like to have this kind of hope. Here's what it says. I love the way the NLT says it. It says this, those who plant in tears will harvest with shouts of joy. They weep as they go to plant their seed, but they sing as they return with the harvest.
That is a mourning that begins with weeping and ends with joy. It is a mourning that we plant, we plant with tears, but Jesus brings us comfort and joy. We weep as we go about this broken world in our broken flesh, but we sing as we return with a harvest of righteousness, a righteousness that's not your own, but a righteousness that comes freely by faith in Jesus Christ. You see, we're able to find rest, real rest in the soul in the midst of our mourning as Jesus ushers in the comfort of his counter kingdom to our hearts now. And one day, he will deliver this mournful, broken world into final rest. I wanna read, we were in Romans 8 earlier, I wanna read a section of Romans 8 just to kind of help us close. Romans 8, starting in 18, here's what Paul says. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, I wanna stop quickly because I think it's easy to read that and be like, Paul seems to me like, eh, suffering, who cares? But we've already talked about the overwhelming weight of scripture would say that's not what he's saying. But he is saying that he considers it. He thinks about his mourning, he thinks about the sufferings of this world and he compares it to the comfort that's coming. Here's what he says in verse 19. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we are saved. See, the creation and humanity itself have been subjected to what they say is frustration. Maybe your scripture passage says futility. We've been subjected to that, but, but why? In hope. In hope. In one hope. That one day we will be liberated until then, as God's people, we groan and we mourn in the midst of this broken world as God's spirit-filled children who are awaiting the full and total and final comfort of God's complete redemption. We are blessed mourners in the middle of the two kingdoms at play, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of heaven. But make no mistake, Jesus' counter kingdom will win the war that is waging within you. He will win the war that's waging within you and within the world. So as we mourn, we keep an eye on the end and the harvest to come and we sing with joy. Blessed are those who mourn.
for they will be comforted. Amen. Call to action today. If you're not a believer in Christ, like if you would say, I'm not following Jesus, I'm not even sure I want to, but I would just, especially with, man, bless her mourn, mourners, bless her poor in spirit. But if you're ready, whether you're here today, whether you're watching later this week or right now online and the spirit is tugging at your heart, the call for you is to make a trade, to trade your worldly sorrow that is really just regretting your life to godly sorrow that leads to comfort, repentance, and salvation. That's your call. If you're a Christian in the room, if you'd say, yes, I follow Jesus, or I do my best to, praise God. The call to action to you today is to stop avoiding mourning. Stop avoiding it. When you sense it in your soul, engage it. But when you do it, step into it with hope, not despair. We have hope. We have comfort. And when you step into it and you experience the comfort of Christ, would you share that comfort with others? And the last one, it's not on the screen, but it kind of dawned on me this morning. If you're like me, there's definitely been times in your life that you don't mourn your sin. And so if that's you today, if you're just like, I mean, you know what, I just, I, I can understand your, your rational, logical way of working through that, Nathan, but I just, I don't feel that. I see why I should, but I don't. Man, I just encourage you as we spend some time in prayer and worship that you would ask God to help you mourn. It's an odd thing to ask. It's like, gosh, it's like asking for pain but it will bring you a comfort you've never known and that you can't have without it. And so as we pray and sing, obviously as each week you can come forward, there'll be members of our prayer team down here if, if you need someone to pray with you. Uh, of course you can pray where you're at, but just ask the Lord to deal with your heart this morning in the gracious way that he does. Our Father, we are here today as your people, as people made in your image, some here, maybe people who are not so sure if they wanna follow you, maybe others who are totally sure. But we feel so often mournful at what we see in our world, mournful that we see such just devastation and sadness and senseless violence and it's heartbreaking, Lord. And I ask right now that that would never not be heartbreaking to us. Don't let our hearts be so calloused to the sin in this world and the brokenness because we are your people. We are your light on a hill. We are to, to be your salt in the earth, to, to be about your ways, Lord. Help us to follow you. Help us to mourn what we see that's broken and help us to mourn what we see that's broken in us. Let us never be okay with that. Let us see the, just the, the reality of the brokenness. May we be just turned away from the ugliness that it brings. 
And may we find hope in Jesus Christ who comforts us in our mourning to say, I have taken all that you mourn on myself and I've paid the penalty and I will one day restore it. Would you encourage us, Spirit, this morning? It is in your beautiful name I pray.